0: You see, these are the things that happen when a first-time pastor goes up to, to give a message. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, if, and I've told some of, you that, some of you guys this. I mean, I was born and raised in Southern California. I've been a Southern California boy all my life. My last name is obviously not your typical American name. It's a very long last name. It's Tep Sapornchai. And uh, I actually studied computer science and engineering at UCLA, and so the joke after that was that it rhymes with tech support guy. <laughs> It does. And, and so now we're having technical difficulties as, as we're going through this, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, and, and so when people ask me, it's like, um, like, oh, wow, your, your last name is really long and, and uh, unusual. Where are you from? And I'll say, I'm from Santa Monica. <laughs> uh, so it works, it works. Great. All right, so this morning um, I've got the final of four messages uh, faithful to finalize. And I spoke to Kevin Ken, I'm sorry, Ken Ken Dawn is Dawn or Doan? Dome. Dawn. Dawn. Strange name, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) See, length of name doesn't make it easier. (laughs) Well, and then he said to me, he said, he said, well, I don't know what could be going through your mind. Your first time here, and, and you've got to wait all the way to the end before you can speak and all that. And and I said to him, I said, yeah, but um, but I was the one that actually chose this. He's like, yeah, that's that's on you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're talking about faithful to uh, finalize and. And really, I was looking at Revelation 19, starting from verse 11 and onward to the end of the Bible. And obviously we know about Revelation, that's the end times. And we know Revelation 19, that's when Jesus Christ makes his return. And as I was reading through that text, it was amazing just how overwhelmed I was by just how much of the rest of Scripture supports it. You know, it's, it's, it's a text that we don't go to that often. Not many churches go to it. Not many churches talk about it. But there is so much that is foundational to what we believe with regards to the gospel um, that comes in those final four chapters. And as I was looking it over, uh, the image in my mind that I got, uh, you know, when you shine a light through a prism and all you get all these different colors coming out. Well, I imagine it almost the opposite way where there's different lights going into a prism and each light represents a different testimony from Scripture. And all of it is coming out in this one bright beaming light that is right here at the end of Revelation. Because it is amazing how much as I was looking at this and thinking about this, how a lot of what is happening had already been prophesied earlier, but we didn't have any account of how it all came together until... The Apostle John was called to write this uh, letter as a revelation from our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as I was going through it, um, there was a few different approaches I could take. But really what just overwhelmed me was all the different verses that started to come to mind. And so what we're going to do this morning, we will take a look at um, at least some of Revelation 19 through 22. Think about what's there, but also just want to take a whirlwind tour through various scriptures in the Bible and just show how clearly it supports the events that are happening there at the end. And my goal this morning is for that to be an encouragement to us. Um, because we can get weighed down by ministry. Uh, we can get, get weighed down by the concerns of our flock. And I know even me only having been on um, staff as a senior pastor for barely over six months. You, you know you develop that heavenly burden for your people. You know, and you start to feel the pains that they're going through, and, and you want so badly for, for them to know and understand what you know spiritually about what's coming. And really compare to eternity how insignificant our trials are today. You know, and um, it's easier said than done when you're not the one going through the trial, but these are the truths that we really have to hold on to. And so there is a saying that if you want to know the Word of God, you read the Bible, Amen. And if you want to hear the word of God, you should read it out loud. (laughs) So this morning, you're going to be hearing a lot of the word of God. So the text is Revelation 19 to 22 and really quite possibly the entire Bible. Um, And my purpose is is to encourage us of the great salvation that awaits at the coming of our Lord. Uh, To encourage us of our great salvation that awaits at the coming of our Lord so that we may continue to keep our eyes focused on him. And I'm really going to break this out into three wondrous truths that arise from our great salvation, Uh, one being the perfection of these scriptures, Um, two being the clarity of God's character and purposes, and three, the necessity of the full gospel and the full Christ. And so these are three things that really jumped out at me as I was reading through these passages and considering the various scriptures and how it supported the end of Revelation. And so on the next slide here, I was considering the triumphal entry that uh, we often refer to when Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem. Um, In the beginning of Passion Week, we often refer to that as the triumphal entry. But every time I hear that, there's um, a little voice in my head that scoffs, and I think that's not the triumphal entry. You see, when Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem at the beginning of Passion Week, certainly he was fulfilling a prophecy. He was riding on a colt. Right. And, and he had the shouts of Hosanna being being sounded out, um, but he would end up being falsely accused. He, he was he was arrested, falsely accused and sent to his death and led like a sheep to slaughter, silent before its shears. And so that's why I think, you know, that is not the triumphal entry. Now, it was triumphal for us because he ended up achieving salvation for us. But this is the triumphal entry. Revelation 19, starting from verse 11, let's go ahead and read it together. And uh, I will be reading out of the NASB. I've been told that's the version that Moses um, started. (laughs) Um, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 reads, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, that, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron And he treads the winepress with the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is our sovereign God. That is our sovereign king. That is our Lord who even reigns on high even now at the right hand of God. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about him, but as I look at this passage, there's so much going on here, but it reminds us that this Lord Jesus is not merely the baby in the manger that people think about at Christmas time. But this is God on high who has all authority on earth and on heaven. And he rules from the right hand of God and will come back to establish his authority in a very real, very visible and very physical way here upon this earth. Now that's the opening passage, but when we think about the rest of the book of Revelation, you know, from 19, chapter 19, verses 17 to 21, we have the triumph of him over the enemies. And then we have the millennial kingdom in chapter 20, verses one to six. I mean, these are things that I'm sure a lot of you are aware of. And then from verses seven to 10, That's when Satan is freed and defeated, right? He's taken into prison during the millennial kingdom, and then he is released, and then he is defeated when fire comes down from heaven. And then from verses 11 through 15, we've got the great white throne judgment. And then really from chapters 21 and 22, we have the eternal state, which consists of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the river and the tree of life, followed by the final message to the apostle John. Um, The passage is pretty straightforward. I mean, I think most of us can read it and we understand what's going on there. Now, there's a lot of debates over various terms and the resurrection and things like that. I'm not going to get into that this morning, Um, but what, what I really want to comment on, what I really want to talk about is just our common salvation that we all share in common and the hope that is tied up in all these things that are happening at the end of the book of Revelation. Now, I'm gonna start with the first great observation as I was going through these scriptures, and that is the perfection of the scriptures. The perfection of the scriptures. And you know that when you have taught other new believers or when you have explained the Bible to other people, one of the things that I mentioned is that, you know, the Bible is written by over 40 writers. And that's usually what the scoffers say also, right? The scoffers will say, you didn't even have the same writer. You had all these different writers. I'm like, yeah, exactly. 40 plus writers, and they're all writing about the same thing, right? Different times, different ages, different places, different cultures, and yet they're all referring to the same thing. And the first thing I think about is the first and second Adam, because when you think about the entirety of the scriptures, you have the first two chapters in Genesis, which describes a perfect existence, right? And then you have the last two chapters of Revelation, which also describe a perfect existence. And in between those four chapters, those two chapters on each end, you have a lot of struggle. You have death. You have the curse. You have the struggle against sin. And you have this plan of redemption that is being unveiled by God in stages in terms of what he is going to do. But when we think about those first two chapters, that the first two chapters of Genesis being a perfect world, and it was the fall of mankind through Adam and Eve that brought death and sin and curse upon this world. And then when you think about the last two chapters and the perfection that ends up getting established, just before that it is Jesus Christ coming, setting up his kingdom, and then bringing about the final great white throne judgment. Before the eternal state is set up. And so I was just thinking about Romans 12. When Paul said, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But then later in verse 15 he says, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man Jesus Christ abound to the many. So we have the first and the second Adam, and we have this contrast where through the first one, death and the curse came into the world. And through the second one, that death and the curse was overcome. Now we have our final victory through him. And it's amazing just how complete and perfect our scriptures are, that we have that on each end to show us the contrast and to show us the wondrous work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And consider the riddle of the Old Testament. I'm borrowing this from Mark Dever. Mark Dever had this large book where he, that he called the Message of the Old Testament. And he points this out, and I thought this was absolutely marvelous. In Exodus chapter 34, and you may remember the context here, Moses um, had interceded for Israel after they created some golden calves, right? The, the golden calf, and he interceded for them. And, um, and then, now, then, then he interceded again to get God to make sure that he was going to come with Israel to the promised land. Um, and then Moses makes a request to God that I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And so then God takes Moses up onto the mountain, uh, Mount Sinor, Mount, Mount Horah, puts him in the cleft of the rock, and then the glory of God passes by. And this is the statement that is revealed. And we see the wondrous attributes of God being revealed here. But we see some very important truths here as well. And I would argue we see the gospel even at this stage. Verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him, being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And this statement, when you read through the Old Testament, you see it repeated over and over again. Um, This ends up being um, the the grand statement of the attributes of God and the goodness and the compassion and the mercy of our God. But what's interesting that in right there in verse seven, you see, I have it underlined. It says that the Lord forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. And we certainly would know that living on this side of the cross. And yet right after that says yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And in that point in time, when Jesus Christ had not yet been revealed, and all Israel had was the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the entire law that they were to keep, one would have looked at those two phrases and said, wait a second. They contradict. How is it that we can have a God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet he says, by no means will I leave the guilty unpunished? That is a riddle. How do you resolve that? And as we know, on this side of the cross, that is perfectly resolved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not only perfectly resolved by the Lord Jesus Christ. This paradox can only be resolved by both comings. Because it's through the first coming that we have this forgiveness of iniquity, transgression, and sin. And it's through the second coming that by no means will he live leave the guilty unpunished. And in fact, in many ways, even for us, those of us whose sins are covered by the blood of Christ. Our guilt has been punished as well, but it was punished on the cross. It was punished by our Lord. But when we think about from Genesis, we know the first first, uh, message of the gospel from the book of Genesis, when the curse hit, and God makes this statement to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Uh, Theologians often call this the Proto Angelion. Um, This is the first gospel. This is the first proclamation that there would be a Messiah, a Christ, who would come and bring victory. And then, towards the end of the book of Genesis, you remember when Jacob brings all his sons together and he gives them blessings. And interestingly enough, the greatest blessing wasn't to his favorite son, which was Joseph, and it wasn't to his firstborn, which was Reuben, but it was to Judah. Starting in verse 8, it says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's wealth. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares, rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is where we get the term the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is a lamb also because he put himself on the cross to sacrifice himself for our sins. But he is also prophesied here as the lion. Well, it's interesting in verse 10 when it says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. We would understand that scepter to be a ruling staff. I mean, that's what kings carry. In fact, you see the synonym being, being stated here, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So the scepter shall not depart, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. But in the NASB, it says until Shiloh comes. And what is Shiloh? What's that all about? Well, the NASB translators, they just saw the word and they didn't know what it translated to. So they just basically used the Hebrew word and and transliterate it to Shiloh. But I actually like what the New Living Translation did. And I'll show you that in just a moment. But the New Living Translation said until until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, because when you break out the Hebrew, that's likely what it actually means until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. And it says there at the end of verse 10, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, this is interesting. Because the word people is singular or plural. Does it refer to a singular person or a plurality of persons? Plurality, right? But this is the plural form of people. It's not just people, it's peoples. So what does he mean by peoples? He's taking people and he's turning into a plural of a word that's already plural. And what he's saying is that he's talking about all kinds of peoples, all varieties of peoples. And that's why the New Living Translation actually says the nations, all nations will honor him. But from Genesis, at the end of Genesis, what we see from God to, through Jacob to Judah is that one from the tribe of Judah to him will belong the obedience of all the peoples. And think about that as Jesus Christ comes to establish his millennial kingdom. So we see that even from the book of Genesis. We see that very early on. But then also from the Psalms. Psalm 2. Amazing Psalm. And we won't read through all of it. I'll pick up through the second half of this. And of course, you'd be familiar with these verses. But think about how this connects with the end times. Verse 6, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. My holy mountain, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then verse eight, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And, you know, the Psalms, we have 150 Psalms. The first two Psalms are meant as the introduction to the rest of the Psalms. You know, so these Psalms are very much messianic. They very much point to the Messiah, to the Christ, to the king that would come. But as we continue on in Psalm 2, verse 10, this is the warning that David sounds out to the king, says, Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Now, verse 11 is not unusual. We would see that everywhere. Worship the Lord. But verse 12 is very interesting because when the Lord talks about who you are to fear, the Lord will say you are to fear the Lord. The Lord is the one that you need to worry about judgment coming from. The Lord is the one who is going to bring vengeance. But here he is putting the focus upon the son. Verse 12, do homage to the son, literally kiss the son. Worship the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Right there in verse 12, we have God the father warning the kings of the earth about not his wrath, but the wrath of his son. If you do not honor the son, his wrath will be kindled against you. And at the end, he says, how blessed are those who take refuge in him. There is no neutral position. You're either taking refuge. You're either covered by the blood of Christ or you are standing in direct opposition to who he is. And that is right from Psalm 2. And then, of course, we have the most messianic of psalms. Psalm 110. Psalm 110. I don't know if you know this, but Psalm 110, verse 1, that is the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. Um, I I was reading uh, the accounts of James Montgomery Boyce as he was preaching through this, and he counted at least 27 instances where Psalm 110, verse 1, was either directly quoted or referenced in the New Testament. So this is quite an important psalm. This is the most messianic of psalms. And right in verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. And we would understand this as God, the father speaking to God, the son, and he's saying, sit at my right hand. And right there in that verse, first verse, we have the implications of both the first coming and the second coming. Why is he sitting? He's sitting because the work of his first coming is done and he can now sit and reign from heaven with God, the father. But he will not stay at the right hand of God, the father forever. He's saying that you're going to sit at the right hand of God, the father, until a certain time, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that's why in verse two, he says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter. There's that word again, strong scepter from Zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies. That is the power of a powerful king. You know, we know in this nation, as we look around Just how difficult the job is for even our own president. With the nation divided, the mainstream media um, standing very much against him for the most part, Um, lots of accusations, very little evidence, and yet I've never seen the nation this divided in all of my time. But Jesus Christ's power is that even in the midst of his enemies, he will very clearly rule. He will very clearly rule. And when we go further down into Psalm 110, going to verse five, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, I don't know if you realize this. I've talked to a few of you who actually know Dr. Bill Barrett. Um, Dr. Bill Barrick is one of the finest Old Testament scholars you will ever meet. Uh, And and the man has an incredible gift for languages. He knows the Hebrew inside and out. He will affirm this that in verse 6, you see that part of verse 6 that I have underlined where it says he will shatter the chief men? In the Hebrew, it's literally he will shatter the head. He will shatter the head. Now, when we think about this, well, the head could be referring to a plura, plura, uh, sorry, plurality of chief men, but it could also be literal. What's it literal for? Go back to the first gospel in Genesis 315, when God told the serpent that he, the seed of the woman, will shatter your head. Psalm 110, I believe, is looking forward to the ultimate victory of the Messiah over the serpent, over Satan. He will shatter the head. And that is right there in Psalm 110. And then here's one from 1 Samuel. You remember when Hannah, Hannah goes to the Lord asking for a son, right? You know, and at at first the, the priest who was kind of in charge thought she was drunk. You know, thought she was um, what was drunk and uh, and and saying nonsense. But he found out later that she was coming to the Lord in grief because she really wanted a son and she was going to dedicate that son to the Lord. And the Lord answers her prayer by giving her a son in Samuel. And then she lifts up this prayer of praise. And I'm not going to list the entire prayer of praise, but at the very end of her prayer of praise, at the end of her exaltation of God, this is Hannah. This is during the end of the age of Judges. Where if you read through Judges, right, I mean, Israel is spiraling downwards more and more, each generation getting worse and worse. And you see over and over again that everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. And of all people, it would be Hannah as as she is saying this prayer to God, that she would say this in verse 10. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And will exalt the horn of his anointed. Even Hannah makes this statement that I believe ties directly into the events at the end of the book of Revelation. And then, of course, we know the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Because when we think about the millennial kingdom, the millennial kingdom that Jesus Christ comes and sets up, I am not one to think that that is a symbolic kingdom. I think that is a real kingdom. And I think the Israelites would have understood that to be a real kingdom. And this promise to David says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is fulfilled by the millennial kingdom. And the house that he builds is actually going on right now. Because as I teach through the book of Ephesians, one of the things that Paul says is that through the Spirit, God is creating us into a dwelling of God. That we are the temple, and that is made possible by Christ. So we see here more connections into the events of Revelation. And then Acts. I mean, think about Acts. At the beginning of Acts, we know that Jesus Christ has already um, been crucified. He's already been raised up from the dead. He's, he's spent uh, at least 40 days with the disciples, right? Showing them how all the Old Testament pointed to him. 40 days they spent with him. And then finally, after all this explanation, after all, all that he's taught them, he asked them, the, the disciples asked Jesus this question. It "says So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, I find it hard to believe that once again, if that kingdom was to be a symbolic kingdom, how is it that after 40 days they would ask this question? And you would think that if they totally missed the point that Jesus would have told them, you just totally missed the point. But rather, what does he say? He said it is not for you to know times or epochs which the father has fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth that is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed that is exactly how all the families of the earth would be blessed but as even as we continue forward the ascension of Jesus Christ after he said these things he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight and as they're gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing, clothing, stood beside them. And I love this. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? I, I would have been looking into the sky. I mean, what <laughs> kind of questions that? right? I would have done the same thing. But I love what he says next. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have watched him go into heaven. And when he comes back, he comes back right there in Revelation 19. And that is the statement, that is the last, that is the the statement that is made to the disciples right after they saw Jesus ascend to the right hand of God. That he will return in the exact same way that you saw him go up. And then just a couple of references from the Gospels. You know, Jesus in the book of Luke, he looks forward to all the tribulation that is coming. Right. I mean, he's he's telling the disciples that, look, things are going to get worse. They're not going to get better. That's one of the things I often counsel um, people with believers when, when they talk about how difficult things are in this world, how they, they you know, people. Uh, there are real life situations of people who are depressed because of climate change. Right. It, it sounds a little silly. You know, there are people depressed and, and are anxious because of all that's happening politically. And certainly it breaks my heart when I see how many unborn infants are being killed in the womb and how every single Democratic candidate right now supports abortion all the way up to the point of birth. Every single one of them. It breaks my heart. But it's also not a a surprise while we should try to fight against it and why I am I am encouraged by uh, the number of planned parenthood centers that have been shutting down but they're doubling down there they they've just recently I just read an article where they're setting up 50 new planned parenthood centers on the campuses of high schools in the Los Angeles district <sighs> on the campuses of high schools and you already know that kids they don't they, they, what they want to do is they want to set it up so kids don't have to seek parental consent to be able to go into one of those centers and do what they do. And when we were in Imperial Valley just a few months ago, there there was a presentation being given about the new sex education laws and, and what's being taught to our children in the state of California. And they're being taught that there are multiple genders, that they should explore their sexuality. There's all kinds of stuff in there that is just absolutely horrible. They're encouraging them to be as sexually promiscuous as possible. And don't worry, because we got Planned Parenthood that can take care of you if anything unwanted happens. I mean, that's what's going on. But Jesus Christ told us very clearly that the world will continue to get worse. He says, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus says, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how bad it's going to get, when I come, your redemption is there. And not only that, but there is another passage from Matthew. I probably have it later in the slide, but... We move from the perfection of the scriptures and really my point in going through all of those scriptures is to show you just in how many places throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do we see references everywhere that perfectly support what we see happening in the last four chapters of Revelation? It's all there. The second amazing observation that I drew from reading these passages is the clarity of God's character and purposes. The clarity of God's character and purposes. And this really stood out to me because there is a lot of misrepresentation of who God is today. There is a lot of misrepresentation of who Jesus Christ is today. You know, when, when, a, when a pastor of a church um, is actually the president of a, of a pro-choice board, um, there is a great misunderstanding of the scriptures and of who God is But God, we know, is in sovereign control. Amen. 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 Isaiah forty six ten, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. You know, I think about the um, the nation's greatest holiday. What is America's greatest holiday as a nation? What would it be? Fourth of July, right? Fourth of July, the, the day of independence. That's 1776, when when, when America as a country officially became independent of England. Do you know when it became an official holiday? Do you know what year? 1870, nearly 100 years later. Now, it had been celebrated up to that time, but it wasn't until 1870 that finally the government got together and said, you know what, we should commemorate this. And when I think about how man operates and how God operates, I love the difference. Because, you know what, man accomplishes something and then looks back and says, you know what, we should commemorate that. God doesn't operate that way. He tells us ahead of time what he's going to do so that we will commemorate it ahead of time. In fact, I even think about Israel in Egypt, right? You had the ten plagues. One after another, after another, after another. And Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. He continues to refuse to let the Israelites go. And then after the ninth plague, you know what God does? He institutes the Passover. That is still observed today by most Jews, even if they don't recognize its significance. He instituted the Passover because he said... When you observe the Passover, you are going to remember that the Lord freed you from Egypt. The Lord freed you from slavery. And the blood of the perfect lamb that you're supposed to take and put on the doorpost, that's what you're going to remember. You're going to remember that you took the blood of a perfect lamb, put it on the doorpost, and you were freed from slavery. And then he brought the 10th plague and freed them. That's how God operates. And what we're seeing through all of these scriptures is that God already knows the end from the beginning. This is not just a statement. This is a proven fact. We have already seen that everything that has, was already supposed to have taken place has taken place. And I would argue that between the first coming and the second coming, the second coming is going to be a piece of cake for our Lord Jesus Christ. He just needs to come and say, this is who I am. The first time he had to humble himself. The first time he had to deal with a lot of adversity, he had to deal with Satan trying to block him from doing the Lord's work. He had even Peter acting as a mouthpiece of Satan. He had all kinds of people mocking him and and beating him and, and trying to get him to to resort to his pride and simply just not go through with it and just destroy everyone around him. He wouldn't do that. But God is sovereignly in control. Everything that he has said that would happen has already happened. So if we know that everything that has led up to the first coming has already happened, what's stopping him from making the second coming from happening as well, exactly the way he has described it? And I say this because a lot of people rebel against God's sovereignty. Oh, no, no, no. There's no way that there can be a God who's total in, in totally control, uh, total control of everything that has happened. And what's interesting is that you hear from scoffers, right? Scoffers will say they will completely reject it. But when something bad happens, they'll ask the question, how did why did God let that happen? (laughs) Well, that's interesting, but that's how scoffers operate. They don't want to admit God is in control until something bad happens and then they'll challenge you on it. But regardless of all of history, we know that God is so powerful that even Joseph could say to his brothers that what you meant for evil, God intended for good. So that no matter what evil is out there, no matter what evil intentions exist, we know that it will come together for good. Romans eight twenty eight God causes all things to come together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And of course, in verse 29, and I think, Bruce, you mentioned this yesterday, that we are called, uh, that the purpose of our calling is that we will be conformed into the image of his son. Conformed to the image of his son. All the scriptures bear witness to God's sovereign control. But there's another aspect of God's character that I think is very clearly affirmed, very clearly asserted. Looking again at Psalm 2, verse 12. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. There are so many people, and you've heard this, this is cliche. I like the God of the New Testament more than the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament was wrathful. Oh, Really? You know, and they, they love Jesus, the baby in the manger. Oh, Jesus just wanted us to all love each other. Have you read Psalm 212? Right. Psalm 212 says, Don't make him angry lest you perish in his way, because his wrath will soon be kindled. And Jesus' wrath is very similar to the wrath of God described in Isaiah 61, which we saw. Actually, this is interesting. Isaiah 61 is not about the, the wrath of God, but so much the, the year of The Jubilee. You may remember this in Luke 5, you know, Jesus Christ goes into a synagogue. And the way the synagogues operate, you know, they just give you a scroll. If you want to read, they just give you a scroll. You open it up, you read a portion, you sit back down and hand it off to the next person. Well, they knew Jesus had been performing signs and wonders. They probably already knew people were starting to ask, is this the son of David? And then he comes into the synagogue. They just happen to hand him the scroll of Isaiah. (laughs) And Jesus just happens to open it up to Isaiah 61. And this is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And actually, he stops there in his reading. He stops right there. And then he looks around and I I get goosebumps whenever I think about this. He looks around. He says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. As I've said this, this is being fulfilled. And what do they do? They, you know, they, end, up, they end up wanting to throw him off a cliff. You know, initially, like, wait, wait a second, this is, isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this the son of Carpenter? You know, we, we've known this kid. But what's interesting is that he stops it right after to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What he leaves off is the next part and the day of vengeance of our God. Because his first coming was to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The second coming is the day of vengeance. And later in Isaiah 63, 63 verses 1 through 4, this is going to describe that day of vengeance. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save Why is your apparel red, Isaiah asked, and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? Verse 3, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there is no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. Does that verse 3 sound very similar to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? That's exactly where it came from. When it said that his robe was dipped in blood. And that he is is, is on the the wine press, the the grapes in the wine press. This this imagery that when people step on the grapes, there's so much juice being thrown about. But that's going to be blood. It's a very visual picture of the violence that's going to come at the return of the lord when he brings vengeance and by the way as we think about that you know these images of violence can be hard to swallow you know especially we know this world we've seen a lot of war we look back at the history we've seen a lot of war you know and there's there's certainly a lot of lives that have been taken a lot of innocent lives a lot of lives that shouldn't have been taken you know, But I want to point out something that when the Lord comes and wages war, it's going to be different than the way man wages war. You see, when man wages war, when, when our troops go overseas, we're worried about a lot of bad things happening. We're worried that our troops are going to get killed. Uh, we're worried that there may be hostage situations. We're worried that there may be friendly fire, right, that leads to casualties, We're worried that our government may be operating with imperfect intelligence, that what they think is there is not really there. The reason why they're going there is not really true. But you know, when our Lord comes, he will operate with absolute precision. Only the ones who are guilty are going to be taken. There will be no hostage situations. There will be no friendly fire. And he operates with absolute perfect intelligence. So that is a war that we can be all in favor of. Because the guilty of which we belonged at one time, we know what it is that we all deserved, apart from the grace of God. And we understand that if God is righteous and he is just, he must, he must exert that justice and righteousness when he returns. So we know that as we look at these, verses as they are difficult to swallow sometimes because this image of war just remember that a lot of the same reasons that we tend to shirk back from these images a lot of those factors are not in play with our lord only the guilty are taken only the guilty are punished but also in considering what uh, we learn about god's character and his purpose obviously we can't miss out on the resurrection Right, I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, then the mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That is Paul, and at the end, quoting Isaiah 25. And all pointing once again to the events of the final four chapters of Revelation. That we will be resurrected. We will have imperishable bodies. And I know for a lot of you that are getting up there in age, you know what it feels like to have things not work the way they once did. We're in Brawley, and there is a lot of people that um, have been there for decades and and more and more um, there are people that are in hospice care there are people who are shut-ins that there there are people that can't make it every single week because of their infirmities and i have to encourage them that the time is going to come when the lord will come and we will be raised up with glorified bodies and he's going to wipe away every tear all of our pains will be taken away and that is all right there at the end of the book of Revelation. You know, Paul, when he made this point about the resurrection, he was basically trying to tell the Corinthians, look, if there's no resurrection, your faith is in vain, right? That's right. Well, I would say, I would stretch that even further. If we didn't have the last four chapters of Revelation, if the last four chapters of Revelation did not, were not to happen, our faith is in vain. We have nothing to look forward to. Nothing to look forward to. But not only the resurrection, but we have the eternal state. You know, one of the sad things about um, our life today and the world around us when we talk about heaven, heaven is often represented as blue skies and angels and clouds, you know, angels playing harps. And the comment that I hear often from people is that that sounds so boring. (laughs) For all eternity, is that all we're going to do? You know, and then on the other hand, you you have now these people that are starting to mute um, or or trying to reduce just how bad hell is going to be. You know, I think Mark Reeves mentioned it yesterday. He said, look, hell is eternal. You know, whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell, your existence is eternal. And that is very much true. But when the world is trying to make heaven to be less than what it really is, and when it's trying to make hell less than what it really is, what you have in between is a gospel that is impotent, that no longer has any real hope or promise or power. So we must hold on to these truths and at the very end of the book of Isaiah, last three verses of the entire book of Isaiah, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will, um, which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon. And from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me. Now, let me stop right there because there are also I'm increasingly running into more and more some people who used to be in my own circles who are universalists, who thinks everyone will be saved. Everyone, whether they confess Christ or not, will be saved. And I say that is a false gospel. Because you're saying that a person can live their life and never profess Jesus Christ and still be saved. And we look at verses like verse 23. It says, all mankind will come to bow down before me. But that's in context because verse 24 says, then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be in aberrance to all mankind. So, we know from the end of the book of Isaiah, there is the eternity of the new heavens and the new earth, but there is also the eternity of torment. And I would even argue that as we see this, this perfectly parallels what we see at the end of Revelation. When the new heavens and the new earth are established, meanwhile, those who are condemned are thrown into the lake of fire where they are tormented day and night, forever and ever. And the ones who have challenged me, the ones that believe in universal salvation, they will say, that's the lake of fire, that's not hell. Oh, really? Because here we're talking about the fire that cannot be quenched. And then right in Mark chapter 9, verses 47 and 48, what do we hear from Jesus? If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He makes very clear that this reference to hell ties directly into what we saw at the end of the book of Isaiah. And that exactly is the lake of fire. And not only that, Matthew 3, 12, we read this. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. People who challenge this often say that you guys must love eternal torment. You you love the idea of eternal conscious torment. Yeah, and I see, the, I see the expressions on some of your faces. That's exactly how I respond. Like, Give me a break. The reason why we teach it is because God's word teaches it. And it is clear. And when you read the final chapters of Revelation, it makes it crystal clear. It didn't just start with some random church father. But I could actually, you know, there there's arguments made that this started in the 4th century or the 5th century. But I could go back to some of the earliest church fathers and they will make reference to hell being eternal. Very, very clearly. And then with regards to eternal life. When people say that heaven sounds like a boring place, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for momentary light affliction? And it's amazing that Paul can, can, can call his persecution momentary and light affliction. I mean, he's been imprisoned. He has been beaten. He has been stoned. He's been left for dead. He's been shipwrecked. He has been chased down by Judaizers. I mean, he's had just about everything imaginable that could possibly happen to him, happen to him, and he's calling it a momentary light affliction, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We can't even imagine the greatness that awaits us in heaven. We cannot even imagine the glory of God that will be showered upon us by the grace of our Lord. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this is biblical counseling, amen? When we go through trials, we look at what Paul went through and remind ourselves, stay the course because God has tremendous promises for us. And then, of course, Randy stole my thunder, but here's 1 Peter 3-5, through 5, and it's just verses 3-5. through 5. <laughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, Undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is coming in the last four chapters of Revelation. Eternal life. So we see in these verses that the character of God, many of the ways that God is is distorted or twisted or challenged, many of the uh, many of the concepts of things like heaven and hell, they're challenged by this world. But these are nothing more than the attacks of Satan looking to twist and distort the scriptures. But those last four chapters affirm what we see throughout the scriptures with regards to God's character, his plan and his purposes. Well, that leads me to the final section which is the necessity of the full gospel and the full Christ. Because as we think of the last four chapters, we also cannot escape the importance of sharing the gospel. We cannot escape the importance of the Great Commission, of what our primary call is. Because judgment is coming. And I think about when Paul was on Mars Hill, and he was debating all those philosophers, right? And at the end of his speech to them, he says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That sounds like a command, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. All people everywhere should repent. And then verse 31, this is a direct reference to what we see happening at the end of the book of Revelation because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That comes to fruition upon the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we want to be able to share the gospel and be able to say that judgment is coming. And you don't want to find yourself on the wrong end of that judgment. Now, I'm not suggesting that people can be saved simply because of their fear of punishment. They can't. You know, they, they have to have a love of God and, and of Jesus Christ and recognizing him as their, their savior and wanting to, to, to have their life to, to, to center around the purposes of God and in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.27, of course, we're familiar with this. And and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. This is all a reminder to us that we have a limited time. We have a limited time before Jesus Christ will return. And once again, Christ is the one who will come to judge. Again, I bring this verse up again. It is the Son whose wrath will soon be kindled. And the ones who are blessed are the ones who take homage in him. And in Matthew 16, 27, this is what Jesus said. And he said this before the transfiguration. After the confession of Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He goes on to say this. For the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Jesus Christ himself said that he is going to be the one to bring vengeance and the ones who do not confess Jesus Christ are going to be the objects of that vengeance. But we do see the love of Christ even now. I see it in you guys. I see it in the missionaries. I see it in the testimonies that I have heard through this time together. Some of you who are sharing with people in your community, with people who are Muslim, uh, whatever it may be, the, the situation that's surrounding you, the people that, be, that God brings into your life, I know some of you live close to college campuses and you go out to college campuses and talk to students. And increasingly more and more, we're finding that our young students have never been to church, have never been exposed to the truths of God. And so we have this opportunity where Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This supports what Bruce was talking about yesterday in that when we are saved, we are expected to be holy. We are expected to act in a holy manner. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So amidst all this wrath and judgment, I don't want to be here and look like a fire and brimstone kind of prophet. Because the truth is that we need to pour out our love, the love that Christ poured out onto us. We need to pour out unto other people by sharing the ministry or practicing the ministry of reconciliation, sharing the gospel. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we know that there is no way we could ever achieve the righteousness of God. We are not worthy of it. It's only the sacrifice of his son that he granted that to us that we may be able to dwell with God in heaven for eternity. In closing, let me just share a few additional thoughts. When it comes to our faith and our hope, all these things are possible. Of course, the title is talking about the faithfulness of God to finalize. All these things in the future we know are possible because God is faithful to bring to pass all that he has said he will bring to pass. And I would argue that those last four chapters of Revelation is basically a number of different colored lights all pointing at the same prism and then coming across in a bright, shining white light, showing how it all comes together. How our faith will be not just the assurance of things hoped for, but it'll be something that we actually see. Hebrews 11.1, one, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We rest in the promises of the scriptures about the future. But knowing that there will become time where our faith will become sight. And we will be able to see the things that we have hoped for. 1 Peter 1.13, that's why Peter says, and you know the context of Peter, he's writing to Christians during a time when Nero is, is basically impaling Christians in the city of Rome. And they're worried about that persecution making its way out. And you think about people that are worried about that kind of persecution, worry about losing their lives. And how is it that you would encourage them if you wrote a letter to them? Well, Peter encouraged them by reminding them of their great salvation and their great inheritance that is waiting up in heaven. And then he says this in chapter one, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope. And of course, we know that the hope in the Bible is different than a worldly hope. Worldly hope is something that is desired but uncertain. It is desired but uncertain. It might even be a long shot. But biblical hope is absolutely certain. It is fully expected. And so Peter says, fix your hope, not just a little bit, not just partially, not just halfway, not just mostly. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter was up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw the glory of God coming through the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew that that was just a preview of what was to come. And according to the uh, the traditions, the church traditions, you know how he was crucified. He was crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy to be crucified right side up like his Lord. But he was a man who fixed his hope completely on the grace that was to be brought to him. And so must we do as well. One final verse. Our citizenship in heaven. It's one of my favorite verses from the book of Philippians. And if you remember when Paul went to Philippi, if you've ever done a study on the city of Philippi, um, Philippi, people that grew up in Philippi had Roman citizenship. In fact, they had the highest colonial status that you can possibly achieve. We all are familiar with the word Caesar, right? You know, the original Caesar was Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar, of course, we know he was betrayed by his friends, Brutus and Mark Antony. And did you know, though, that one of his descendants octavius ends up taking revenge right octavius ends up taking revenge against brutus and mark antony has victory so basically julius caesar though he is dead he is redeemed his name is redeemed and that victory was commemorated in the city of philippi it was commemorated in the city of philippi and everyone in philippi was given that special status and here is paul walking into philippi being a true roman citizen Allowing himself to be arrested, beaten, imprisoned, when at any time he had the trump card in his back pocket and said, I'm a Roman citizen. He didn't do that. Even when he was in the prison and the earthquake came and the, and, and the doors were made wide open, the jailer just assumed that they left. They had to yell out to the jailer, we're still here. We're still here. And then the jailer comes and drops at his knees and says, what must I do to be saved? And why is he asked that? Because all night Paul and Silas had been singing hymns and songs and spiritual song, and he was probably hearing the gospel very clearly from that. But what's amazing is that the church in Philippi would not have been possible if Paul did not make that sacrifice. And then what's even more amazing, Paul, who had the Roman citizenship, and of course, when the authorities found out that he was a true Roman citizen, they were frightened. Because Paul was a true Roman citizen. They had their Roman citizenship given to them. But it's amazing when he writes to the Philippians, what does he say? He says, our citizenship is in heaven. From which also, in other words, from heaven, also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where his hope was. In verse 21, look at this. He's talking about. Our glorification, our resurrection, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Paul had the end in mind, always, and so too must we always have the end in mind. And though I've only been in ministry a few short months, I've already been through some situations that have been heartbreaking to me. Um, I've seen people do things that they didn't need to do. I have seen people refuse to trust the Lord when they should have trusted the Lord. And I've seen a lot of people that don't dwell enough upon the glories of God that await us in the future. Before us as ministers, as workers, we must always trust in that future. We must always have that hope. Because even if they don't believe it, they must be able to look at us and know that we do believe it. And that we will hold firm, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the cost. Because our God is a great God. And everything that he has written, that, has come to, that was supposed to come to pass, has come to pass. And everything that is supposed to come to pass in the future will come to pass. That is the greatness of our God. Let us pray.